Welcome back to another episode of Cody Underground. I am Cody Willard, and today I have a very special guest. One of my oldest friends, really, on Wall Street, especially as I got into the media business side of it, Barry Ritholtz, the man, the legend, the myth himself, is joining me here today. Barry, thanks for joining uh, you know, Cody Underground today. Cody on the ground today. Cody yep. underground. The um, you know, I don't know if people know our relationship that it's like 15 years. Seriously, I mean, I actually, if I'm not mistaken, we met when I was. You're on a to, panel. I was speaking next to Lenny Dykstra at a street at a the. No, no, no. It was before. Conference. It was before the Dykstra era. It was. I had written for the street in. I want to say 99, 2000, 2001, somewhere in That's that period. That's about where period. I started, too, yeah. And and I got into some sort of pissing match with Jim Cramer about something. <laughs> and I was actually trying to do him a favor. Like, he used to paint these giant bullseyes on his own back. Like, hey, Jim, not for nothing, but why are you poking us? You know, you're, you're making it hard for other people to defend you. And the next thing uh, I know, I get a, uh, hey, thanks, but we're done with you. And a few... <laughs> I want to say a year or two later, I see you at this panel, we start chatting, and you basically reintroduce me to the street dot com. And at that go round is when I so maybe that was oh three or oh four. That's when I did the apprentice investor series and that was like enormously successful for them. Um, what was the thing you did on Fridays too that I loved every Friday? maybe it was on Sundays. It was on the weekend, on the weekend was the Link Fest. That was it, just the Link Fest. Yeah, I loved those. Those were great. And it's uh, amazing that yeah, it's amazing that I've been doing those sort of Link Fests pretty much daily for 15 years now. Is is great. Yeah, I still read those on ridholtz.com. By the way, everybody listening, you can find Barry at ridholtz.com and these days you're also at Ridholtz Wealth Management. That's right. It's RitholtzWealth.com or on Twitter at Ritholtz. Or at this little, uh, uh, there's this little shop down the street that I agreed to help out because, you know, they're a small kind of broke entity and they needed some help. So there's uh, this place called Bloomberg.com. And I occasionally, <laughs> I've heard of that. I will occasionally contribute, uh, actually pretty much every day, uh, a link fest and an essay for them. And, and that's been fascinating because it's such a. The, their readership is, you know, it's very different than a blog readership. And they're of course, just, yeah. I mean, you're, those are professional money managers yeah, that it's typically insane. are the, the Bloomberg audience. It, Barry, it's in, it's insane to write something and have the head of Calpers call you up and say, <laughs> "I liked what you read, wrote, but can you explain this a little better?" Like, it, really? Oh my this god! Reminds me of the time that I said that uh, Ford uh, debt was going to end up causing them utter nightmares when I was on Fox and I get a phone call from, you know, the Ford executive higher up people, the CFO eventually gets on the phone with me to go through his balance sheet, which to, to this day, it's just a highlight of my life, frankly. Um, but very talking just sort of on this line of of topic that we're already on, the, the career trajectory that you've taken, I know a lot of people listening right now are, you know, people that have been following us for 10 or 15 years and also a lot of young up-and-coming people that maybe would like some hint about how we've done, how we've built our careers outside of sort of that Goldman Sachs, Harvard, mainstream Wall Street success story. So what advice do you have for 
the Josh Browns of the world, which, as you just noted before we started the interview, is one of your great discoveries. So who, <laughs> who, what, how, how do you, what, do you, what advice do you have for the next 10 years for someone to become a Ritholtz kind of powerhouse and build a career that you've made? It's funny. I actually did a whole post called My, My Unusual Career Path in Finance. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll tweet it to you. I started as a trader, and I found it kind of fascinating. Um, by the way, there's like six Cody Willards. You're aware of I'm that. I'm just at Cody Willard. I'm the I, main I one. see it. You're, 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 you're the me. Gotcha. And uh, you, should, you should get uh, validated. So yeah, people... you know, I'm just, I need to do that. I, I, you and I talk offline. I don't even know the path to go down. Neither do I. Some, since I, I'm not under corporate guidance anymore at Fox, I don't know how to get myself validated by Twitter. So so here's here's how, here's how my path got, was sort of bizarre. So I started on a trading desk, and, uh, you know, I don't have the typical background like you said, it, it's not a Harvard Business School. It's not Wharton. It's not Goldman Sachs. So, but but I am fairly intelligent. I'd like to think I'm fairly intelligent, and I'm really good at separating BS from truth. And so each morning I would sit down, and before the trading day started, I would make a series of of uh, notes to myself and jot it down. And you know that was in the early days of of computers, and so I would basically write up as as just part of the process, something I learned from a girlfriend in grad school, just write it all up and, and put it down in a single sheet and here's here's what I have to deal with today. And as time went on, I got better and better at it, doing it, and it was a lot of really interesting things. It, it was just a process. And one day, the guy whose desk is next to mine says, hey, this, uh, hey can I see this? Sure. So he starts reading it for a week or two, and then the next day, um, God, this is like 12, 15, 16 years ago, 7, 18 years ago. And and so the next thing I know, it's being distributed around the room, and then it's getting faxed around town. And before I know it, suddenly there's an email list, and I'm, I'm sending it out on email. And when GeoCities came along from a little company called Yahoo, hey, you know what? Instead of having to deal with, typing this up and emailing it and printing it and faxing it. Imagine people used to fax this crap around. <laughs> I would just post it on GeoCities, and anytime anybody asked, hey, you know the site, go go look it up. And so I, would, I, I did that, and that made life a lot easier. And then the crazy part of that whole GeoCities thing is we were, at the time, my office was headquartered in Two World Trade, on the 27th floor, and I was in the Long Island office on, on 9-11, and I got a hold of my head trader, who who literally gave me a running narration of everything that was going down until the, going on until the towers collapsed and the smoke cloud broke the cell signal. And I wrote the whole thing up and emailed it to him ten, that night and said, and spoke to him that night and said, hey, is this accurate? Yes. Hey, do you mind if I post this tomorrow? I'm sure people are going to be interested. He said, yes. And un, unexpectedly, you know, 100,000 people, uh, you know, I got emails from people saying, what are you doing? You're crashing our servers. You know, if I just happen to put a picture or something in it, it, it was just insane. Um, and so that kind of made me think, all right, I guess maybe I have a ability to communicate important information to people. Maybe I should try and 
find a better format for doing that. And I got invited to be a beta tester. It was my second beta tester invitation for a company called TypePad, Six Apart, that made TypePad and was one of the early blogging software. I remember your blog used to be on TypePad. I so it's still, can I tell you something? At one point for my personal blog because I saw you had host, you were hosting it. Yours, they were hosting yours. It's still there because I didn't want to give it up. It cost me like some stupid $15 a month. And if you go to bigpicture.typepad.com and you stay there for a few seconds, it automatically forwards you to the new blog. But um, the the really weird thing is GeoCities used to take however long it took me to write something and then two hours to code it. By the way, the first company I was invited to be a beta tester for, I don't know how the hell they found me, was this little search outfit called Google. And I used it for like a week and I sent them an email, hey, this is really good, I'd like to be an investor. And they said, we're good, thanks. Um, <laughs> but that's absolutely true. You know what? Day it came public at eighty-five bucks a share. If I don't, if I'm not mistaken, before that I was split. either eighty or eighty-five. That's exactly right. So, in so fact, very, because because everybody was on the book because of their reverse Dutch yeah, auction, exactly. they couldn't they couldn't get anybody from Wall Street to talk about it on TV. So, uh, you had all these these usual I was, people. That's funny you say that. I was on with Maria Bartiromo on CNBC the day be- or the week before the IPO talking about the Google IPO, and I never made that connection. That was probably because I was about one of only ten guys that they had ever had in their rotation that would that was willing to talk about Google because it was that reverse op, the Dutch uh, my, like Myself said. as well. I talked about it in print. I talked about it. I, hey, you know, but, this seems to be so like you know, a really reasonable price and a great product. People should buy it. And I got hate mail for it. That was $85. <laughs> you suck. It's $1,000 now. I guess I really suck. I loved. I actually remember quoting the Barron's article that had a twenty-five dollar fair market value prediction on it. The couple weeks or a couple months after it came public, guys didn't think that it had any earnings ability. But Barry, going back, the, the what I always tell people and what I've seen you do in your career, at, both on Wall Street as you know now in wealth management, running a wealth management firm, but more to the point just in general in your career at all, is showing up every day and doing it your way and keeping consistent in both of those two dynamic things you have to do. You have to show up every day, and you've got to just sort of be consistent in your way of looking at the world. Not that you can't change, but you have developed a brand like you that you rightly pointed out. It sort of has some objectivity and looking at things differently than mainstream Wall Street, which leads me to my second topic I want to hit with you. What, go, you wrote a great book. It's, it's been called The Definitive Book on the Bailouts. And what's it called? Bailout Nation, right? Yes. And I've read it. I loved it. Writ, written partly with Aaron Task, if I'm not he, I hired him one of our from the street, friends. I hired him from the street.com to be my editor. Because of my annoying tendency to engage in digressions as opposed to staying focused, and and he was as enormously by the helpful. You've given so yeah. far, by the way, right? That's the problem with free associations. It just you know, just keeps going. By the way, the quote you were looking for is from Woody Allen: "80 percent of success is showing up." That that'll be the digression for this paragraph. Beautiful. Thank you. That's a great way par- way of ending us on a digression for that um, about digressions. About digression. That's very fractal. It can just keep going. But I digress. I think I need to. Yeah, you are digressing once again, and 
I'm not going to allow this to go any further on that digression. Talk to me about the current state of the banking industry today. I, the way I look at the world, these banks are completely still on welfare without 0% interest rates, quantitative easing, and other stealth ways of giving them advantages and unfair advantages and outright welfare. I'm... I don't see the earnings power in these companies. Is there a sustainable business model in investment banking anymore? So there are, two different, there are two different questions buried in what you're asking. One is, hey, are we still bailing these guys out in a number of different ways? And the second question is, hey, are these sustainable business models? And the Correct. answer to both questions is yes, and here's why. First, I have no doubt that 0% interest rates and quantitative easing exist for, for partly because Congress is inept and wasn't doing with their job, which is during a recession, you substitute government demand for completely flatline consumer and private sector demand. If you see how Europe did without without it, they're absolutely in the crapper and are, are flat on their ass. If you see how the U.S. did it, it's actually a fairly healthy recovery even though it's filled with warts and even though it's a horrific recovery compared to normal ones, it's a credit crisis recovery and it's pretty much about where it should be by the historical data. Japan is halfway in between. They're starting to come along. If it wasn't for their tax, they wouldn't have had this uh, recession. But let me come back to, to, to the actual bailouts of the banks. You know, all of the major banks are still festooned with mortgages festooned with residential real estate loans even six years after the crisis still there still they, could go bad. Have, they have not figured out how to get that stuff off of their balance sheet how, how the do you who's going to buy after it after all the trillion the taxpayer right Federal reserve is buying that crap from them left and right well they're buying the securitized um paper but you know it's not something they're going to hold for 30 years the the uh, duration of the fed's Holdings uh, averages about seven years. But by the way, that said, now that the real estate market has somewhat recovered, now that the banks are somewhat healthy, you're setting the stage for the Fed to begin to talk about normalizing rates. I don't, I don't think we're going to see rates really start to tick up until, uh, optimistically, the early part of next year. I don't mean going to six percent. If the Fed took rates slowly to two percent. That should not kill the economy. But the answer to the other question you asked is, do they have a viable business model? What everybody seems to forget is during the financial crisis, you went from 20 substantial competitive money center banks to four. So the, the competition has completely collapsed, and it's become, an, uh, for lack of a better phrase, an oligopoly. So mm -hmm. think about it. J.P. Morgan Chase... They end up absorbing Bear Stearns. They end up absorbing Washington Mutual. Wells Fargo ends up using uh, taxpayer money. By the way, all of these examples yeah. were were completely subsidized. Well, wow, Washington Mutual wasn't. Without, uh, Bear Stearns was. Washington Mutual was an FDIC transa transaction. Wells Fargo absorbed Wachovia. That was another FDIC transaction. Um, go down the list: Indy Bank and. Think about every bank that either collapsed or 
Uh, you know, Merrill Lynch but, but, is absorbed by then, Bank of America. So, so you have so then, much less competition today. Right. So let's assume then that these are sustainable business models, if only because they're now truly protected. Uh, the, the four, five, six biggest, too big to fail banks are now truly protected oligopolies by the Republican-Democrat regime policies that, right. that stemmed out of 2008. Why then, if, why did... Is it just gravy? Is it foaming the runway, as little Timmy Geithner would put it, that these guys are still getting trillion dollars of welfare a year in addition to that protection? It, and is it, maybe it's sustainable, but is it sustainable at the profitability levels that, the, that we currently see? Uh, you know, banks actually do better when interest rates are higher. There's a bigger spread for them to make money. They're more incentivized to make loans. So perversely, all of this, um, all the support, all this, these bailouts, all these really low rates, on the one hand, it hurts their actual business of making intelligent credit decisions. Right. On the other hand, it's free money, and they still have figured out ways it's to do it. In the end, it's once again, if you're politically connected enough to the Republican-Democrat regime, I hope you don't mind me using that term too much. No, today, not at all. It's, the how far, it's not far from the truth, when it, at least when it comes to finance. Exactly. Look, I, I think there's a greater corporate America in general. I think corporate right. America is so protected, and their profitability, these subsidizations for factories, subsidies for factories, the the ability to move earnings around to different na sovereign nations like Ireland, et cetera. But Barry, I just wanted to say, in other words, it's typical that it's the when the tails I win, heads you lose for the banks, right? I mean, they're going to win whether rates are down and they're getting welfare or whether rates start climbing and they actually have a reasonable, sustainable business model. Yeah, I, th I think you're you're not far off. It's it's basically a situation that, uh, who was it, Senator Dick Durbin, in the midst of the crisis, turned around and said, these bankers are running around like they own the place. And the reason reason for it, quote, he said, is because they do. And exactly. he's talking about Congress. And, you know, it's, yes. it's it's an ongoing issue. If if we don't get a resolution for campaign finance, then it's Goldman Sachs world. We just live in it. I don't disagree at all. And I would simply, I got to push back on one thing you did say earlier about sort of a Keynesian approach to economics, that the government needs to ramp up spending in a recession in order to Compensate for the decline of consumer and business. Not spending. in a recession, in a in a collapse. Okay, that, people get it backwards. Recession. So let's be clear that you're talking about a collapse. But even then, I'm going to quote the Milton Friedman, who of whom I'm no oh, fan he's necessarily. Oh, he's Don't quote I know, but Friedman. okay, but there's no government. He wants to get rid of the FDA no and let the program. marketplace decide. Let me just finish what... the statement, though. Whether you're quoting him or not, in my own life, I've never seen a government program that was temporary. And so whether the government thinks it's ramping up some temporary type of spending, it always ends up becoming a lifelong forever thing with the Republican-Democrat regime ever finding more ways to fuel it. Whatever well, that just look, at, look at the ARRA. Look at the stimulus that was really way too small in the in oh nine oh ten. That was $787 billion, and when it ended, it ended. The problem is that it was two-thirds temporary tax cuts and temporary extensions of um, uh, of unemployment benefits, and they have a stimulus effect while they're there, and as soon as they disappear, they disappear, as opposed to, hypothetically, something like 
the interstate highway system, which after it's built, <laughs> creates or, or or DARPAnet, which becomes the internet. These have a multiplier effect, which are really substantial. I'm I'm a huge proponent of uh, if someone would appoint me a benevolent dictator, I would immediately do five things. I would demand every bridge, road, and tunnel be brought up to modern standards. You go to Europe or Asia, it's embarrassing to come back to the United States. I would I would mandate that every uh, every airport in America be at much higher quality standards. And by the way, our air traffic control system is is falling apart. You know, I've been writing but about wait, this crap long before sixty minutes. You're doing a digression here. Wait, I want. I got to get back to the. I, I've got a couple other questions, but I've Fire got away. questions about the topic we're on. Hit, hit me your last four. You said five things you do. So, so, so it's airports. It's all the roads and bridges. I would mandate the sort of bandwidth. I would make it mandatory the sort of bandwidth that they have in in Asia where. The uploads and downloads are just astonishingly fast. A, gigas, man- a gigabyte per gigabit per second speed, et cetera. Number three. Stop and think about what that does to the to the that entire universe of businesses oh, that with, exist on I, the. That's a, I, I didn't necessarily think the government needs to be involved with that, but I. Do well, the know private sector I, has completely really, shit the bed with this for the I, past but, twenty years. We're getting off topic, but Barry. Here's my <laughs> question then. Fire away. As benevolent dictator. Yeah. Aside from that, you're you're known as an economist, and like we were just saying, you're not a classically trained economist. I am not an economist. I just play one on TV. Exactly. Yeah, and and you're playing one on the radio right now. But my question is, how would do you consider yourself fitting into any classical kind of definition of the different kind of economic theories? Are you a, a freehand advocate? Are you a Objectivist and Randite. I know you hate Milton Friedman because you just said that. I don't hate him. I just find some of the stuff that. Listen, here, here's the thing. There is no. Uh, that's a really good question, and I'm going to try and give you uh, an answer that that is suitable for that. This isn't like your first week in college where you have to declare a major. There's no reason to swear adherence or loyalty to any one ideological school of thought. When in the course of investigating and reading about these, they all have something to contribute, uh, at least some more than others, but there's some validity somewhere within it, and no one of them has a monopoly on wisdom. So what I take from Milton Friedman is if the choice is between a government-mandated dictate or the free market – most of the time, we want the free market to make that decision, not the government. I, I agree with that. On the, uh, however, I could look, go to Lord Keynes and say, "Hey, when demand plummets and government, when businesses and households aren't spending, it's okay at that point in time for the government to increase stimulus by cutting taxes and increasing spending, even though it's going to temporarily create a deficit." Because it'll help get the cycle towards where it becomes self-sustaining, and I, you're absolutely I, I right; that. it does not become self-sustaining. Ayn Rand brings up some interesting concepts. The problem is, and people forget this, she was pushing back against Soviet Russia, not against America. That's her background. That's where she came from. People seem to think, you know, humans are social creatures. We we work in communities. You can't just say, "Hey, every man for himself," said the elephant as he danced amongst the chickens. That that right. doesn't really work I, either. 
I think part of what Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand was trying to get at, and it's missed in the mainstream and um, interpretation of her works, is truly an anti-corporate welfare state. And she didn't want a welfare state for corporate America or for, you know, the average Joe on the street. But I think most people somehow think she's all about big business, and I don't. I'm not sure people actually have read to her who think that. I'm not an Ayn Rand advocate either. I'm like you. I call it free thinking. I'll take whatever I right. get from wherever I get and be as free thinking and objective, to bastardize a term from Ayn Rand um, about that. So here's leads us so, into our next question. How about? The state of which, again, being objective and free thinking, I think applies to the markets and the economy and the cycles therein. Got to be bullish sometimes and bearish sometimes. Exactly. Barry, where are you right now? Talk to me about real estate and stocks specifically. So we've just lived through a really fascinating 15 years, and and I mean fascinating in in both senses of the word. It's it's engrossing and and as well as gross, and so. You know, here we are. We're we're less than ten percent away from the two thousand peak in the Nasdaq, and and when you look at the history of markets over long periods of time, you see markets move in these big waves and these big cycles. So f- I'll give you quick examples. Following World War II, for nineteen forty six to nineteen sixty six, you had this huge beneficial set of economic cycles that all happened at once. You had 40 million GIs returning from the war, many of whom took advantage of the GI Bill. They got a a practically free college education. You had the rise of car culture and the build-out of suburbia. You had the rise of the electronic industry. You had the rise of civilian uh, aviation. You had all these things happening at once, plus six years of pent-up consumer demand, and it unleashed an explosion. And remember, the entire... U.S. industrial footprint was on a wartime footing for a long time, and now those people turn around and, and redeploy all those assets towards consumer goods. And so you had a riot, an explosion of economic activity and corporate profitability, which worked really well for the market. So 1946 to 1966, I think the low around the war was somewhere around 130-something on the Dow, we end up at a thousand just about in 1966. Now you get the flip side of that bull market, that secular bull market. The 60s and 70s, you have Vietnam and you have Watergate and you have the oil embargo and you have high inflation. And that 20-year cycle had come to an end. And it's not a surprise that from 1966 for another 16 years, the market essentially went nowhere. Yeah, there were big ups and big downs. But you never got over a thousand on the Dow on a permanent basis. I just wrote about this this very topic today in my uh, on Scudify dot com and Scudify the social network, which I'll tell you about and ask you about uh, your thoughts on it in another venue at another time, Barry. But the topic being that everybody seems to think that the market has to crash or the market has to go up another into more bubble areas. Is it possible that? At least we should be thinking about for the next ten years we go nowhere. It's a sideways market. Rain well, well, if you bought the market in two thousand, you essentially <laughs> went nowhere. Been. You you went nowhere for fourteen years. The, right, the exactly. S and P. So, like in nineteen sixty six, the Dow hit a thousand. It got over and on a permanent basis in eighty two. 
In 2000, the S&P 500 hit 1,500. And it wasn't until, was it last year sometime? In the I think spring, it was just earlier this year. That, that we got over it on a, on a, on a permanent basis. That, oh, right. That's the question. We don't know if it's a permanent basis. Look, right, one, of exactly. the nice, one of the nice things about working with Bloomberg is they're very entrepreneurial. And I proposed to them an idea for a radio show slash podcast. And they're like, sure, here's enough rope. Go, go hang yourself. And so... I've been doing these long-form interviews with these guys that I have access to through through Bloomberg, and people who look. I'm I'm in the scheme of Wall Street. I might have a few gray hairs, but I'm in the middle of the age bracket. I'm I'm fifty something, and I get to sit with guys like Ralph Acampora and Laszlo Barini and Jeff Sout and a handful of other guys and. They all said the same thing. Jeff Sout in particular, he's the chief strategist at Raymond James. Yeah, he's I like, know. this reminds me of the early 1980s, where after a 16-year bear market, no one wanted to believe it was over. And he goes, even the 87 crash, people just said, told you so. You know, you gave up 23% in a, in a day. But meanwhile, the market still closed up for the year, albeit 1%. And the bull market never looked back, and nobody wanted to believe that the horrible 60s and 70s had ended, and it was a new era. And he looks at the current market in a very similar way. He thinks, hey, this is a new secular bull market. It began, um, depending on when you want to date it, at the lows in 09 or in 2013, when you entered a whole new trading range for the S&P and the Dow, and it could go another 10 or 15 years. Now, it doesn't mean that you should see 10 or 15% a year, and we certainly are a little more richly valued than we were in 1982. But then again, in 1982, the 10-year was yielding 15%, not 2.5%. So it's a fascinating – so it I is, am constructive but, but aware that we're not going to see the sort of results that we typically associate right. with the we're bull probably, market. We're probably not going to triple over the next five years like we did from the '09 bottoms, but that doesn't right. mean that we're going to crash either. That's but right. The, the, the thing that I've been writing about, and my biggest thesis for the last since I left TV and at the last year of TV was, I shifted from bear to bull, and part of it was that even if it's not long term fully sustainable, that the Republican-Democrat regime's policies and everything they've done since I've ever been aware of what they're doing has been propping up corporate America, corporate earnings, making it cheaper for them, for corporate America specifically, to borrow money, making cor corporate tax rates lower and lower through all of the you know, loopholes and 168,000 pages of tax code that we go through here in this country to try to file taxes. When does, how long can that sustain? It's, does Main Street at some point just truly get a trickle-down mini-boom that can last for a while? Or do we end up with a two-tier economy of corporate boom and wealth and bubbles and the rest of us, especially in rural areas and inner cities where you're poor, you've got no chance for upward mobility anymore because the wealth all the new wealth all generates and ends up at the top. So those two things are not mutually exclusive. It's another really good question from you. On the one hand, we see corporate profits at a very high level, all-time record, although that's natural, but as a percentage of GDP uh, at a record high, 
the way that improves is by GDP expanding, not necessarily by profits coming down. On the other hand, there are a number of factors that have not worked to the advantage of the middle class, and it's very cyclical, but let's just talk about three quick, really quickly, three things people have to realize. Number one, globalization has been an ongoing issue and will continue to be an ongoing issue. It's an enormous labor arbitrage play, meaning why do I want to hire people here when I can hire them cheaper? That's part of the backdrop. Number two, and this is really significant, um, software and productivity improvements have, have made it so that what used to take 30 or 40 people can be done by a couple of people with a computer and some software. That's a fact, and it's just going to continue, and there's no way around it. So the old thought of I'm going to get up and go to work for a big company, and they're going to pay me until I retire, you got to get that out of your head. That's not going to happen. That's just not the real world. And then lastly, of course, you have a, a ongoing skew of baby boomers retiring, and that's that's a factor that's out there. However, when we look at all the data in terms of there's a set of number called JOLTS, which is the uh, job openings and turnovers, and you look at the number of people applying per, job, per opening, number of unemployed relative to the opening, hey, back three or four years ago, there were six job seekers for every opening. Uh, earlier this year, there were two job seekers for every opening. Now it's one and a half. Eventually, and I think this is going to happen in 2015, the competition for labor is going to start to heat up, and that means wages are going to start to tick higher. That still doesn't mean that that wealth isn't going to disproportionately fall to the highest um, earners. Uh, my my partner Josh Brown just did an article for Fortune about this insane tower on Park Avenue that it's the tallest tower in North America. There are only 104 apartments, and the penthouse just sold for 90 million, and most of the apartments are seven to 30 million. There's no doubt that. In how much subsidy did the builder and the people living there get? Oh, I don't think they got. I I think there was some tax incentive. Listen, every city, every state has a tax incentive to get people to build, to improve, to spend money. Supposedly. I don't buy that for a minute. People would build and improve without the tax code. You need to lower it for everybody or not at all. Don't just do a one-off for some rich guy supposedly doing something good. So in New York City, if you build an apartment and you promise to make a certain number of apartments available Mm -hmm. for for lower-cost, lower-income, there was a big scandal in the city that these lower-income units Hey, if you want us $8 million penthouse and you want to come in through the marble lobby, that's one part of the building. But if you're in the subsidized low income, well, you get a different door and it's not a marble lobby. And you know what? You're in a beautiful building. You're in a beautiful neighborhood. But if you're not paying for the lobby, you shouldn't go through that. That that was a big scandal here. Okay, but you so as a taxpayer giant... are always paying for the lobby. That's the That's the fungibility of that money. I mean, that's where, you know, uh, a $300 million exactly. into a billion dollar stadium and pro sports owners. You know I hate that, right? Same, well, this is this is just a smaller version of it. I don't see how you can be um, against one and for the other. Well, so so if as the the difference is there are thousands of builders and and hundreds of thousands of of houses, buildings, apartments, and every time a new one goes up, if if the same tax rules apply, then at least in theory it's it's a little fair. But, they don't. but there's only you know, one giant like stadium. So there's the only one Yankee stadium. But it's 186,000 pages long, the tax code, because the same rule never applies. 
It's all you keep the accountant employed, right? guy who's got the money to pay an accountant to figure out how he can get it. If you can save a hundred million dollars with a smart accountant, it costs and it costs you ten million dollars to get there. Well, you just made a heck of a return. No, no doubt about that. But I think it's different for stadiums, which is privately owned. There's just no re- every study has shown there is no return to taxpayers to do that. On the we other hand, it's, once again, you realize. <laughs> but the key takeaway is the key takeaway is we should see some wage improvement in 2015. That's I thank you for the takeaway. We needed one. Um, listen, and on that note, we're frankly you know up and up here against market close, and this has been you've been so generous with your time, and I really appreciate all the insights. And you know this was just a fascinating conversation on a lot of different levels. Let's do it again. Maybe can you start doing a regular with me once a month or something? I don't know about once a month, but we certainly can do uh, do this again. I, you know, I go through these periods when my travel schedule is just mayhem, and December and January is exactly that. I'm actually going to be not too far from where you are. I have a trip to Seattle and L.A. planned for for January. I was trying to go where it's warm in the winter. You, you got to love that you somehow think Seattle and L.A. is closer. To How far is L.A. from you? I mean, it's a thousand miles, twelve hundred miles. We're halfway. You got to remember, Southwest isn't really Southwest when you really? refer to New Really? You're that far away from LA? I also have a trip to Dallas. How about Dallas? Dallas is. I mean, I. It's both of them are a good ten hour drive. But what are you going to do? Right, Maybe well, we'll six hundred miles from each. I might have exaggerated. Barry, thanks for your time. I'll talk to you offline and catch up with you. And um, you know, Riddles.com, Scudify.com, the Funk Cody. Thanks everybody for tuning in. That's Cody Underground.